the question on the table is what does fully human look like? And to begin this, I'm just going to get my iPad here for a second and ask you guys kind of a either technical or philosophical question. And we're a small enough group, so we'll just do this. So when, when does an iPad become an iPad? At what point would a, a user, the end user, say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's an iPad? And the, I mean, it's a bit of a rhetorical question. You should know the answer. It's not really an iPad just because it has rare earth metals and some bizarre glass on the screen and some kind of lithium battery and all kinds of interior microcircuitry. That's all well and good. But it's only well and good if it what? Anybody? Only if it works, right? And so it's not really an iPad until it's functional. Until it's functional. And the reason that's so valuable to uh, kind of ponder is because uh, if you go back and you ever read through Genesis 1 through 3, the story of Genesis 1 through 3 really is about God not just creating stuff, but making things that are functional. Because in the beginning, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And, the, and then it says the earth was formless and void. What does that mean? That means um, all the stuff was there, but nothing was functional, all right? And so then... He begins to create things and give them functions. He separates the waters. So you have ocean and land. Land has a function. The ocean has a function. He creates the hydration cycle, right? Evaporation, condensation, wind, rain, or in my case, snow, melt, rivers, back to the ocean. You read Psalm 104, the hydration cycle. That has a function. What's its function? Well, its function is to serve the flora and the fauna, right? That God also created, which also have a function. Uh, the, we eat the flora and the fauna, and so that helps us sustain our lives, and they eat each other, and that helps them sustain their lives. So land, water, sea creatures, flora, fauna, sun, moon. Moon has a huge function, right? the tidal cycles that uh, create the way that we live. The sun has an enormous impact on our lives. And then finally, at the very end, God creates humans. It's the very end of Genesis 1. So the, then the question is, okay, sun has a function, moon has a function, everything has a function. And then when God created humans, male and female, he created them, humans have a function. What's their function? What did God say? Let us make humans in our image. So what's your function and mine? Our function is to display the character of God. That's humanity's function. So my mentor, Madrian Thomas, he used to preach and he'd say, you know, if a, if a Martian or some alien space creature 
got a hold of Genesis 1 and saw in the text that humans are made in God's image, then they'd be like this. Oh, well, if we want to know what God is like, let's go to earth. And then let's just look at humans because they're the image bearers. And of course, if an alien were to do so and look at humankind and say, uh, what's the character of God, what would, they, what would they say? Well, we got bad news about this God who created the universe. This God's a liar. This God's unjust. This God's oppressive. This God's greedy. This God's fearful. This God's hateful. hateful. There's a warring God. There's a, this is a corrupt God. Uh, this God destroys its own creations uh, wantonly. On and on it goes. Uh, and, so, and why would that bad report come? Here's why. Because in Genesis 3, we lost our capacity to fulfill our calling to display the image of God. We lost it completely. It's still inherent in us, but at best, what any of us offer is a distorted image of God, right? At best. So, so that's kind of the challenge on the table. And when you read the Bible, if you've been here this week, you know, oh, Abraham, how did he do? Well, he lied about the identity of his wife and then he slept with a maid. How did, how did uh, uh, Isaac do? Unabashed favoritism regarding his children. Tried to usurp the will of God by giving the blessing to the older son. How did, how did Jacob do? Liar, cheater, thief. How did Judah do? slept with his daughter-in-law, thinking her to be a prostitute, impregnated her, tried to cover it up. Um, how did the rest of the brothers do? They murdered an entire village. And that's God's chosen family, right? And then there's, then there's all the other, you know, all, there's Mesopotamia and Egypt and all the other, the, you know, the Hittites and the Amorites, all of which are building their, their empires on polytheism but domination. None of them look like God. So we fall, we, here's the deal, we've fallen short of our capacity to fulfill our calling. And no one, no one, no one, no one, no one did it ever until, well, it comes Jesus, right? So in uh, uh, the Gospel of John, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 14, here's what you see. Uh, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. That's Jesus becoming a man. And then it says this, we beheld his glory and his glory was as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when Christ came, what did Jesus say? He said, if you've seen me, you've what? You've seen the Father. I am the exact, exact representation of my creator. That's not only cool, but what, you, what is important for us to understand is Jesus is the first one to do what is actually all of our calling. Because we're all called to be image bearers, and Jesus did it, right? And so we want to kind of learn from Jesus, what does it mean to kind of be this full, exact representation of God? And so tonight, the first thing that we have to do is kind of raise our sights and fixate, if I can say it that way, fixate on Jesus, right? And so that's what we learn in Hebrews 1 and 2. Listen as I turn to Hebrews 1, and I'm just going to read here for you. Um, we, read, we read this in Hebrews chapter 1. 
God spoke in many ways through prophets, many portions, but in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son, heir of all things, through whom He, God, made the world. God made the world through Christ. Then it goes on. He, Christ, is the radiance of God's glory, and then, very important, the exact representation of His nature and upholds the entire world by His power. So, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus, right? And, and okay, we all understand that, but do we? Because here's, Jesus made a warning in John 5, 39. What did he say? He said this to religious leaders. He said, you guys search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Now that sounds really complimentary, but Jesus goes on and he finishes the sentence and he says this, the scriptures point to me, but you're unwilling to come to me. So Jesus has identified a problem in religious institutionalism whereby he says it is in us to substitute the text for Christ. Does that make sense? So we become Bible scholars, but in a, in a sense, in our scholarship, we run the risk of uh, missing the forest because we're fixating on the trees. And I can tell you, because I was a seminary student, I'm with people who know the Greek, know the Hebrew, know the church history. Some of them know the Aramaic, but in their personal lives, it's not working. There's a disconnect between, like, head knowledge and looking like Jesus. That's the, um, I don't want to call it an underbelly, but there's a bit of a danger when we drill into our kids to memorize the Bible if we don't also drill into them that the point of that is not to memorize the Bible. The point of that is to, to give you the equipment to look like Jesus. Because if memorizing the Bible is an end in itself, you go to Awana and you get a billion badges and you win contests, but, but then you grow up and you walk away. And I can tell you as a guy who teaches young people all over the world, many grow up and walk away. So we, we want to learn here to not fix it in the Bible. This is how C.S. Lewis says it. It is Christ himself, not the Bible, who's the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to Christ. We must not use the Bible as a sort of encyclopedia out of which texts can be taken for use as weapons. So don't, don't kind of cherry pick verses to reinforce a particular ethical construct because the most important fixation for us is not, uh, like we were talking last night, there's a big debate on the ethics of divorce and remarriage. There's a big debate on women in ministry. There's a big debate on can you lose your salvation. Debate, debate, debate. Fine, we have debates. But listen, the point is never to win a debate. The point is we're fixating on Christ because if, if we do that, the promise of 2 Corinthians 3 is as we gaze at his glory, we will be transformed from glory to glory. We'll become like him. My fixation is not the text. My fixation is the one to whom the text points, right? This becomes really, really important. Uh, and, and then I just say to people, 
beware of saying, I only follow the Bible. Because I'll just give you one example of what that means. Because my response when people say that, I just, I'm a Bible-only guy, I always say, well, which part of the Bible do you, do you follow? Because, for example, let's just take meat. Let's just take eating meat, right? Pre-fall, no meat eating. Then there's a flood, and then what does God say in Genesis 9? Any, anything that crawls, you can kill it and eat it. But by the way, they're going to be afraid of you now and run. And then uh, God creates this nation, and the people of God are offered distinction between clean and unclean meat. And then Jesus comes and the church is born, and there's a debate about whether Gentiles can enter the faith. And the conclusion in Acts 15, 29 is they can enter the faith, but they can't eat unclean meat. Even though Peter had just had a dream in Acts 10, 13 with oysters and bacon descending from heaven, and God said, arise and eat. And what did Peter say? Never. I'll never do it. Why? It's unclean. And what did God say? Yeah, whatever. It was unclean. I'm now declaring it clean. And then the church had a big debate about it after it had already been declared clean. And then by the time we get to 1 Corinthians 8, there'd been this debate about eating food sacrificed to idols because in Corinth, the, the um, polytheistic temple that was Greek in origin would have their own worship services, so to speak. And afterwards, anyone in town could go to the kind of community potluck and get protein. And there were Christians who were at the bottom of the ladder and they couldn't afford to eat good food and they were going to the, 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 the Corinthian pagan temple and they were eating meat and there were other Christians saying, you guys can't do that, that's pagan stuff. And then what does Paul say? He says, listen, we all know regarding eat, uh, eating food sacrificed to idols, we know the idols are a fabrication. There's really only one God. So if you, want, if you eat meat sacrificed to an idol, it's not really sacrificed to anything. Go ahead and eat. But don't eat if it makes somebody stumble and will cause them to lose their faith. You have liberty to use your judgment. So you just follow the Bible. Where? Genesis 1, 9, Exodus 19, Acts 10, Acts 15, or 1 Corinthians 8? Because they're all saying different things. <laughs> That's why our fixation is not the, I say, don't follow the Bible, follow Jesus. Why? Because Hebrews says, Hebrews is the full and final expression of God. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, for this reason, we, you know, believers, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. Because if we're not fixated on Jesus, then uh, people who use the Bible to fabricate a Jesus co-opting their cause will seduce us away from what Paul calls the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 2. Simplicity and purity. Like there's one thing, Christ. Not Republican Jesus, not Democrat Jesus, not American Jesus, not Haitian Jesus, not liberal Jesus, not progressive Jesus, not conservative Jesus, not armed Jesus, not pacifist Jesus, Jesus. And so we get, if, we get, if we fixate on Jesus, we'll still have healthy debates about all these ethical issues, fine. But we'll understand that the debate is not intended to create like a partisan divide, but to bring us all closer to the one who's true. So 
we got to fixate on Jesus. And then the question becomes, if we go back, and that's my responsibility, <laughs> the question becomes, if we fixate on Jesus, what do we learn about image bearing from Jesus? And the first thing I'll note is one of the things that I find incredibly appealing about Jesus and liberating for all of us in the room is Isaiah 53, where we read this. Regarding Jesus, regarding Jesus, it says in Isaiah 53, I mean, he's the image bearer, right? If I, if I superimpose my own notion of what an image bearer, the creator of the universe, would be uh, on, on Jesus, I, I, I mean, just Saturday, I went and saw Top Gun, right? And, you know, Tom Cruise is, you know, strong and confident and good-looking and, you know, charisma and powerful. But Isaiah 53 says this. Here's Jesus. He, uh, he grew up like a tender shoot, had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that would be attracted to him, despised and forsaken of men. So Jesus walks around and he, his clothes, it's not his clothing, it's not his CrossFit thing, it's not his body mass index, it's not his charisma. What is it? What is it that's attractive? Well, the first thing is dependency. Because when you go through, you go through the book of John, he says it over and over again, not my own, not my own, not my own. We went through it last night, so it won't be redundant. But he says, my teaching is not my own, my authority is not my own, my will is not my own, my judgment is not my own, my works are not my own, my time is not my own, my life is not my own. Everything that I am, I am because I have, my life is a life of surrender to the Father so that, so that God can express life through me. So for us as well then, if I'm going to be an image bearer, Romans 12, I have to surrender my body to God. It just gets super practical. For me, it gets super practical. I wake up in the morning, I go, okay, God, it's your day. It's not my day. So I just surrender all my expectations. And whatever happens today, it's going to happen, right? Just a, I'll give you one funny example of how this plays out. My entire life, because I've been a pastor, people buy me meals. They buy me meals all the time. Now I'm semi-retired and living on less income, and it's tempting no matter how much money you have in the bank, and we have, pl I think, plenty, it's telling you, go, oh, I wonder if we're going to make it till the end. Are we going to die broke? You know what I mean? Like, it's an American phobia. So, uh, last week, I was speaking in Southern California, and a guy says, hey, I'm going to take you to lunch. And then uh, we get there, and he goes, I can't find my wallet. And I go, no problem, I'll buy. Fine. It's all good. And then today, I went to General Sherman to meet a friend from Fresno who I'd gone to high school with. And my friend goes, it's crazy. I got up here and I realized I didn't even pack my wallet. I don't have, all, I don't have any money. I don't have any money. You got to buy lunch. And I was like, no problem. I'll buy lunch. And then I, but I wrote in my journal, God, I, you know what? You're teaching me, God, not to hang on. Are you with me? Like surrender gets very practical. And, and God sees me a new paradigm. Oh, guess what? You can be generous now. You're an old man. You can start taking young people out to lunch. Buy them milkshakes. Get out of the mindset that you're impoverished, that you've lived in for 40 years as a pastor, right? So the life of surrender gets super practical. We're just like this. Whatever, God, you got lessons to teach me today. And we, and we live that way. So dependency... 
Are we surrendered, right? Are we, uh, to go back to last night, are we asking? It's actually, you guys weren't in this talk, but are we, it was the talk with the staff. Are we, are we asking with curiosity, God, what, you know, what are you teaching me here? In the fact that people forgot their checkbooks in, in the traffic jam, in the, in the co-worker that I don't get along with. Surrender. Second, really important, Jesus makes it quite clear that his kingdom is not of this world. So in uh, Matthew 4, 17, right after, you know, he battles Satan, so to speak, in, in this uh, wilderness thing with temptation, in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus begins his ministry, and it says he preaches, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven. Now, so a couple of things here. Kingdom of heaven, don't misread as like not here, like, like heaven's geographically remote, because Jesus says here, he doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, wait, and I'm going to exit you. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and that could be translated in the Greek language, the kingdom of heaven is near or among you, which is literally what it says in Luke. So repent from aligning yourself with the kingdoms of this world and align with my kingdom. Does that make sense? Like, like I have this kingdom now. By the old song, you know, that we sang in high school, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Da, 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 you know, and all these things will be added to you. It's like, you don't have to worry about a thing if you can kind of cut loose and, and trust that God is providing you, pro- providing for you the kingdom. We used to take people repelling all the time in our wilderness ministry, and that was the best lesson is, you know, you're on the very edge of the thing, and it's 90 feet down, and you go, okay, just lean back. And no one wants to do that. It's totally counterintuitive. But you go, no, no, you have a rope, you have a harness, you have a backup system. Don't worry. You're going to learn here. You're going to learn to trust. You're going to learn to trust. And then you, apply, you can apply that to all kinds of things in life, right? So to, we turn from the kings of this world toward the kingdom of God. And hear me, both are important. I cannot turn toward the kingdom of God without turning away from the kings of the world. I can't have both. I can only face, I can face you, or I can face you guys. I can't face you both. So if you're the king of this world, and Jesus says, repent, what he's saying is, you've got a value system, you're on it, but don't be on it anymore. New value system, right? New way of living. That's a kingdom. Uh, and, and, and so this kind of repentance call was a critique to the entire religious system. The Jews were divided into four crowds. So he, what he's saying is, he's saying to the zealots, hey, you zealots, turn away from this ideology that you're going to storm the capital by force and put in a new government. It's insurrection. No, there's a kingdom over here. This is a kingdom of God. So the zealot thing isn't right. Pharisees, he says, hey, you guys, turn away from your obsession with moral purity that causes you to create division and hypocrisy and turn to the kingdom of God. To the Herodians, he says, turn away from your attempt to have it all, both the favor of Rome and full devotion to God. You can't. And to the Essenes, he says, turn away from your isolation, living in caves, and get back in the game. 
Everybody has to change. But these are the people of God that all needed to repent and follow this kingdom. And this kingdom then is, as we said last night, in the world, not of the world, but that's where we're called to be. And this kingdom is a kingdom of contrasts. In other words, Jesus says, you've heard it said, and he's talking to religious people, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. And what he does is he turns conventional wisdom on its head. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. Perfect. It's in Exodus 19, right? Thou shalt not kill. I say to you, in my kingdom, uh, we're going we're to dig a little deeper, and I want you to deal with your anger problem. The fact that you can't have Thanksgiving with your brother anymore because he voted differently than you. That the kingdom of God reconciles those relationships, right? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm saying to you, look, you can stay married, but staying married really isn't the point. The point is undivided devotion to that one that you love so that you're not inwardly resenting that one and wishing you could conquer another. And I'll never forget, there was a guy in our church, he and his wife celebrated their 57th wedding anniversary. So, you know, I had him up to interview him. This is about 2005 or something. And, I, you know, they're up here. They're, they're old people, you know. And I go, what's the secret? 57 years. You know what he said? He said, and he was kind of a, he was a fun guy, but a little grumpy. And he goes, Divorce is not an option. And then they sat down, right? And so then, you know, we've got 200 college students in the room. And I said, what do you think? They go, this is why you guys have not given us a good example. She said, I don't, I don't want to live, I don't want to be in a stale marriage for 57 years where the only reason I'm still there is because divorce is not an option. I want to be, show me a couple that's in love after 50 years, because that's what Jesus wants. That's the point of do not commit adultery in this text. And then you've heard this said, an eye for an eye. And what I say to you, what? Somebody hits you on the left cheek, turn and give him the right cheek as well. Someone says, hey, take my pack a mile. Say, I'll take it too if you'd like. Someone wants your coat, give him your shirt. Years ago, when I was living in L.A., these girls had come to Christ. They were new Christians. And they came to this little Bible study. And uh, they happened to be studying the Sermon on the Mount. And on this particular night, they happened to be studying this particular text about uh, giving stuff to your enemy, right? They want your shirt, give them your coat, or whatever it says, right? So uh, they're in a Bible study and, and kind of hearing Jesus doesn't really mean that, of course. Got to be... Got to be practical. Got to have your pepper spray, you know. And, and then uh, they left the Bible study and they were talking on the way home. I don't know, maybe Jesus does mean this, you know. Let's see if we can just continue to pray about it and get some understanding. They park their car. They come out. They get out of their car. This is in uh, Panorama City, right? San Fernando Valley. Get out of the car. Here's a guy with a knife. Give me all your money. They, they've just been to Bible study. They look at each other and they start smiling. And they, they share this the next week. They said, 
So, you know, we thought we'd put this to the test. And so we said to the guy, listen, uh, we can give you our money. We've got some cash in our purses a little bit. But we've been saving for a cruise. So we have, we have more cash in our apartment, like $300 in a jar. And if you'll just wait here, because we don't want you in our apartment, we're going to go up and get that money and, and give it to you. Um, we'll give you this money right now. And uh, this is pre-cell phone days. We promise we won't call the police. But we're going to go up. And it, he didn't know what to do, oddly. Because in his entire career of robberies, this had never happened. So he goes, oh, wait. You know, you have 90 seconds. They go up. They get this cash. They get a Bible. They put 300 bucks in a Bible. And they go and they say, here's like 300, 300 and change. And, you know, we got an extra Bible. We want to give you all this. And, and then we'd like you to leave. But before you go, uh, we like to pray for you. That's what they said. We like to pray for you. How can we pray for you? And this guy, he starts to cry. And he says, uh, you want to pray for me? He says, I want to live the way you're living. And then they shared the gospel with him. Now, that doesn't always happen. You know, Sophie Scholl, at 23, in Germany, distributed literature advocating for the overthrow of the, of the Nazi regime. She was arrested and beheaded at the age of 23. But here's the point. God isn't calling you to success. God is saying, hey, here's kingdom values, and are you willing to shoot the moon? Because you know what I mean if you play hearts, right? Are you willing to shoot the moon? Because listen, if you shoot the moon, sometimes this guy is just going to drop his knees and receive Christ. Sometimes you get executed. Sometimes you get raised. Sometimes you get fired. But that's not your concern. You be faithful. That's the kingdom of God. And I think it's a challenge for evangelicals. But we have, to, we have to see that the kingdom is literally not of this world. That's what Jesus said in John 18 when Pilate said, oh, so you are a king. He says, I'm the true king. And then Jesus says, relax. This is my paraphrase. But he says, hey, my kingdom is not of this world. So you have authority, been granted by God, but my kingdom is not of this world. doesn't mean that it's out there. It means it's here when we behave like those two girls. Or Sophie Scholl. And, and there's more. The last shall be first. I came, you know, Gentiles in the leadership structure, there's a hierarchy, you lord it over them. Here, you want to be great? You're the servant of everybody. So that's what we learn about image bearing. Dependency, kingdom of this world, kingdom of con contrast. And then, you know, where this plays out is we come to discover that this kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom of peace. Uh, he came preaching peace to those who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Ephesians 2.17. And, of course, we know it in Jesus' ministry. Here's the woman caught in adultery. What does he do? Not only does he save her life, but he brings her into this state of reconciliation with her own soul. 
What does he do with a woman who's had five husbands? The Samaritan woman. Who, there are three reasons he shouldn't be talking to her. A, a woman. B, a Samaritan. C, five failed marriages. According to the law derived from the Bible, Jesus makes himself unclean by ministering to that woman. And yet what does he do? He brings her peace, and she is the first evangelist in the entire Bible. She comes back and says, hey, here's somebody who knew everything about my heart. Maybe this is the Messiah, and she's a Samaritan. That's incredible to me. So Jesus does this peace thing with people demon-possessed, with people sick, with people dead, with people broken down, with people confused, with rich people like Zacchaeus. But it's always to break down dividing walls so that in the end, this kingdom that Jesus is creating wouldn't have walls of class, race, or gender distinctions. Galatians 3.28. A kingdom in which there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. So all the hierarchies that put people up and down, in and out in our world, blown up in the kingdom because it's a kingdom of peace. So Jesus' kingdom is a clear contrast to what I call domination models because he brings shalom. And so shalom looks like this. This is just stuff that defines shalom. Leaders serving, winning coming from losing, the last or first, hospitality, dividing walls broken down, people united, immigrants, widows, orphans, cared for, peace, justice, reconciliation, greater than war and oppression. Remember the year of Jubilee? that when all debts are forgiven? How incredible is that, right? That that would prevent this kind of ongoing huge gap between the rich and the poor in the world, and it's God's design. When the, did you know that when the Sabbath was instituted in Exodus 19, it's not just for the people of God, it's for the slaves, it's for the Gentiles, and it's for the animals even, right? All, all of creation. Let the land rest every seven years. Don't take the outside of your fields so that poor people can eat. Set slaves free after six years of service and send them away with money. Set captives free. Empower women. This woman uh, in John 4, the Samaritan woman, among many others. So, you know, Jesus has a model. And it's always been in the heart of God to bring peace. So that he says, just before he's arrested, John 14... He says, uh, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. And then, don't you love this? Don't allow your heart to be troubled. But listen, the, the, the peace that is offered is, is shalom. And shalom by its nature has no category for insiders and outsiders. Do you know what I mean by that? We got shalom because they didn't. There were only three milkshakes. We fought and we got them. That's not shalom. That, in fact, is this. The domination model. If we go back, can we go back one? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Remember, all the way back to Cain and Abel, you, you see the domination model simply says this. I want what you have, and so I'm going to conscript it by, 
by power, if I can. Cain, killing Abel. Then in the genealogy, Lamech saying in Genesis 4, I've, I've killed a man for wounding me. Retribution. Then, then, then Babel. Then Egypt. Then slavery. Then, you know, Israel called to represent the heart of God, but they neglect the law of God, so they neglect the Sabbath, they neglect the widow, they neglect the orphan, they neglect the widow, they abuse the land so that by, by Hosea 4, uh, verse 2, we read, even the land is mourning now. Not just the people are upset, the land is upset. And then they said, give us a king. And, uh, you know, Samuel the prophet said, no, no, you don't want a king. God's your king. Oh, no, we want to be like all the other nations. Give us a king. They got a king because they got a king. They got civil war. Because they got civil war, they were, they were destroyed by the Assyrian Empire, also domination model. Assyrians lasted until the Babylonians destroyed them. The Babylonians lasted until the Persians destroyed them, who lasted until the Greeks, who lasted until the Romans. And then we're ushered into the dark ages of tribalism until there's colonialism and conscripting land all over the world. Europeans, like just literally dividing up a map of Africa on a table and saying, okay, the French get this, the Germans get this, the Belgians get this, and we're going to take their stuff, and they're going to work for us, and we're going to keep them alive, but they've lost everything. They've lost everything. And then go, on Sunday, go to church. And, and, you know, I just have to tell you, in my city, <laughs> this is why 20 to 30-year-olds don't go to church anymore. Because we we've never named it. It's no problem. Your testimony, right? We all blow it. Nations blow it too. But let's name it. Because if we name it and own it, we move on. But if we continue to falsely claim moral high ground, it doesn't work. I could show you sermons from 19th century pastors articulating that uh, uh, the Negro isn't human and that it's God's will that they be owned as property and that anyone in the congregation who would... Uh, Declare them to be human is to be excommunicated. I could show you the sermons. They're, they're in libraries. They're in PhD dissertations. And so, listen, it's not an American problem. Go to Canada, same problem. Go to Europe, same problem. But it's a problem. Why? Because the domination model is not this kingdom. It's this one. And so when we, if we say, repent, and we're like this, oh yeah, I've repented. Well, really? What does that mean? Well, I've received Christ as my personal Savior, and I don't get drunk, and, you know, I'm, I'm happily married, and divorce is not an option, and I tithe, and I go to Bible study, but, but I'm, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm passively complicit in the domination systems of the world, still, then I, I, I'm not looking like Jesus, you see? So the kingdom of peace stands in contrast to the domination model. And the result of uh, the kingdom that Jesus came to offer is that, you know, Jesus said it this way. If we get to this next one here. Let me see if I can. Remember what Jesus said? He said, there's a broad road and a narrow road, right? Right? And, what, of course, Jesus, what did he say? He said, look, 
here's the narrow road. The narrow road, what is Jesus' mission statement in Luke 4? He says, God has anointed me, proclaiming good news to the poor, proclaiming liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Boom! When that happens, like in our neighborhood, pagans are finding the gospel because the front door isn't you're a sinner, it's will you come make sandwiches for the homeless people who are living on Aurora a mile from our church. And people are like, yeah, I'll be there. Sign me up, man. And then pretty soon they become friends with Sally, who's in Bible study fellowship or mops or whatever thing we do. And then, they're, and then they're in the stream of God's activity. And then they're meeting loving people. And then they're hearing the gospel preached. And then they come to Christ. But the starting point was the kingdom. Does that make sense? Really, really important. Because the result of this kingdom that Jesus brought was this. The religious leaders, Rome, and the Jewish heads of state, all of whom hated each other, they all agreed on one thing. Jesus needs to die. So one thing they agreed on. He's raised the dead. He's healed the sick. He's restored sanity to a man living in the tombs. He's crossed social divides. And even on the night of his arrest, he revealed his character and continued teaching by healing the Roman soldier's ear that Peter cut off and then saying to all the disciples, hey, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword, which is kind of this very important warning. And so then I have to ask the question, like why would they so hate Jesus that when Pilate said, I can't find anything wrong with him, and they just shouted, give us Barabbas, and then Pilate says, what am I going to do with him? And they said, crucify him. Pilate does this. I'm innocent of this man's blood. What do they say? Matthew 27, 25. Let his blood be on us and our children. I mean, we're so, we hate this guy so much. If God's mad at us, we'll bear it and our, go ahead and strike our children too. That's, that's the degree of hatred for Jesus. Why? Here's why. Watch this. Loyalty to this kingdom means I can't be conscripted anymore to participate in the domination model. Do you, do you understand? Like, if I'm really in this kingdom, then this kingdom holds nothing for me anymore. And, 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 and so now, you're a threat because you're inviting people to loyalty to a different king. Not the king of consumerism, or the king of nationalism, or the king of individualism, or the king of materialism, but the king who is Jesus, who loves all people, who lives simply, who reconciles, who heals, who crosses social divides. So that when the church began then, this loyalty to the kingdom of God, because they were fixated on Jesus, the early church was characterized this way. Emperor Julian, he wrote in the 4th century, regretting the progress of Christianity because it was pulling people away from Roman gods, right? And so he's persecuting Christians. But this is what he wrote to his cabinet. He said, the atheists, by whom he means Christians, the atheists, he says, their cause has been especially advanced because they render loving service to everyone, including strangers. 
And they bury the dead, even the least of these. And they rescue babies who have been discarded for death. And it's a scandal that there's not a single Jew who's a beggar and that godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for the poor of all people. How can, he basically is saying, now this is my words, how can we compete with that? They were pro-life, pulling discarded babies from ash heaps, and they welcomed all ethnicities and classes, and they welcomed women, and they welcomed refugees. What does it mean to be functional? Wow. Kingdom of God. So we, here we, here's the thing. We need a right vision. We need a right vision. But we need more than a right vision. We need a right power. And so if, 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 I, if I get the vision, if you've been with me tonight, my guess is you're like this. Hey, no way. The bar's too high. Well, remember what I said the other night? Christian life isn't difficult. It's impossible. There's only one who could live it. His name is Jesus, and he did. And he lived it, and he died, and he rose. And now his desire is to live in you so fully that you become an image bearer as well. Imagine churches across California doing what the first church century did, displaying the image of God in that way. It can happen. In the fall of 2017, you know, hurricanes had swept through the Caribbean and southern United States, and, you know, millions of people were displaced. And then uh, there was a, a, a pagan blogger in Houston, Texas, and he said, there's only one reason Houston will get through this tragedy, and that's because of the so-called people of God <laughs> who are already there, and more of the so-called people of God are on their way from all over the country and all over the world. Volunteers giving and doing and serving, not just for days and weeks, but some for months and years. Some sacrificially out of their own pockets. I remember churches mobilizing when the Nashville flood hit a few years ago. In the aftermath, we gutted houses, helped people reconstruct their lives. I remember the stench of those washed out neighborhoods. But it's the so-called people of God that offer this fragrance of good deeds. There's something there, is what he writes. There's something there. Is there? Yeah, there is. But it's for those who say, you know what? I'm going to rise above all the political posturing. I'm going to rise above all the defensiveness. I'm going to rise above all the religion. And I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and allow Christ to be in and through me what I cannot be on my own because Christ in me is the hope of the glory of God being seen in this world. I'll live a life of surrender and the adventure will be amazing. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for giving us this week together. It's been a joy. And we're mindful that uh, the church in America right now so desperately needs to be fixated on your kingdom so that you find ex freedom to express through us hope and justice and mercy and peace and life. May that be the story you write in each of our lives. And would you show us next steps we can take as we seek to follow you. And we'll thank you for the adventure that awaits as we do, praying in the name of Christ. Amen.